Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 157, and we're going to talk about a bucket list problem. It's a little complicated, I'm going to explain it to you, but you may not have actually completed the bucket list you think you did. We're also going to talk about a way to monitor pets in your van while you're not there anymore. A product review of a video game for your van, it's just kind of fun, and a place to visit that was meant to take money from ship owners. <laughs> a little strange there too. Nothing but strangeness this week, which is my favorite kind of podcast. Welcome everybody, thanks for being there so you can listen to me babble for another 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, this is going to be another one of those episodes where I'm going to dive into something just a little bit strange. Uh, And this does apply to van life because most van life people have a bucket list. They want to visit all the national parks or they want to visit, say, every place named Aurora in the United States. Or they wish to live four years in a van or whatever. Your bucket list is yours. You can have it be whatever you want. And for some people bucket lists are tied around geographic places. Like you want to visit all 50 states or you want to visit all seven continents or you want to join the Century Club and visit a hundred countries. Whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. The problem I'm running into is that as I'm getting older and the amount of time left to actually complete my impossible to complete bucket list is waning, I'm starting to wonder what I've actually done. Now, let me explain that to you. Um, In my 50th year, I visited my 50th state. So I have been to all 50 states. I finally knocked off the Dakotas when I was 50. Yay, good for me. But 50 states is just like a number. I mean, well, what about Washington, D.C.? That's not a state, but should that be on the list? Well, as it happens, I used to live near D.C. I've been there many times. That one's easy. What about Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico's part of the United States. Should that be on the list? Okay, well, I have been to Puerto Rico many times. That one's easy for me. Uh, What about Guam? Mm, Or American Samoa? Mm, Or Guantanamo Bay? I mean, how exactly do you define when you've completed something on your bucket list? Now, this is a very specific problem for me currently, because having just been to Antarctica, I have visited all seven continents. And that sounds like a nice concrete thing until you start thinking about, well, what's a continent? (laughs) Now, we have our normal definitions of continents, right? We've got all the ones that begin with the A's, right? We've got North America, South America, Africa, Asia, Australia, and Antarctica. Those are all the A ones. And then we have Europe that begins with an E for some reason. So we have all seven continents right there. But is Australia really a continent? And more specifically for me, how do you know if you've been to Antarctica? What's the definition? Well, so digging down a little bit more in that, it turns out it's actually pretty difficult. Some people define Antarctica as anything below the 60th parallel. And I've certainly been below the 60th parallel, so that counts, right? But then I can say, well, wait, does the inverse of that work? I mean, have I been to the Arctic? Have I been above the 60th parallel? And while generally I would say, no, I haven't been to the Arctic, 
I have been to Helsinki, and Helsinki is above the 60th parallel. I've also flown over the North Pole when I was going to Japan, so, I mean, does that count? It, it's, it's arbitrary in the end. Another example is that I've been to St. Petersburg in Russia. So I have been to Russia, right? So when I have my big map of checking off countries I've been to, I can check off Russia. Bing! And it lights up this massive country on the map, and it looks like I've been to this huge place. Meanwhile, I've also been to Lifu, so I can go bink and check that one off too, which makes zero impact on the map at all. Now, I've only been to one city in Russia. I've seen St. Petersburg. That's it. Never been to Moscow, never been to Siberia... There's a lot of the country I haven't seen, and I didn't spend the night there. Most of the places I visited have been on ships, and you typically don't spend the night there, so I've only spent days in these places. Does that count? Well, I don't know. You have to decide for yourself. I have a friend who only counts places where he stayed for two weeks as being visited. I know other people who say that you have to spend the night. Still other people say, just set foot there any way you possibly can. And that counts. Now, that's actually the definition from the Century Club, which is this elite club that you can join if you visited 100 countries by their definition. They claim that so long as you're inside the border, whether it be at an airport or whatever, then you have been there. I've been to Alaska many, many, many times, but I have never slept on land there. It's always been on a ship. Have I been to Alaska? Mm, I don't know. I get to decide, though. That's the point. However, my deciding has gotten muddied lately because I have noticed this problem with Antarctica. Now, as it happens, I have a shower curtain that is a big world map, which probably doesn't surprise too many of you, but it's a new one. It's a navy blue one, it's much prettier, and I still had the old one. So what I did was I took the old one, yes, it was also a map, and put it on the inside of my shower curtain. <laughs> so I now have a world map on the outside, which is a Mercator projection, and then a world map on the inside, which is a Robinson projection. As you know, if you take a round object and try to depict it in two dimensions, you have to distort things. It's the only way you can do it. And all the different projections of maps distort things differently. The Mercator projection, which is what I think of as a normal map, that's the one I grew up with, distorts things at the poles. So it makes Greenland look like this massive island the size of Africa, when in fact it's really not that big. The Robinson projection is very similar to Mercator, except that it's rounded on the edges. And it has less distortion, although towards the edges, on the right and left side, it starts to get really weird because, like, the land disappears. <laughs> you can't draw a line from one side to the other and have it wrap around and still be on the same map. So it's a little strange. But all maps that are depicting the globe are compromises. All of them. So it, I noticed something wrong with this map. No, there isn't a typo or a misspelling. And yes, I understand the distortions. Africa is actually much bigger than it appears. The United States is smaller. I, you know, I get all that. What I noticed was the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic. Now, the Arctic, as you are probably aware doesn't have any land under it. I mean, the Arctic Circle, there's some land up there and, and 
Arctic, the Arctic, if you're going to define it as above 60 degrees, has land for sure. But there's no land mass at the North Pole. It's just ice. And because of this, you know, ice doesn't count as land. It's not on the maps. If you look at most maps and you look at that area, it's just water. But that's not true for Antarctica. If you look at Antarctica on maps, it's this very specific shape, kind of round, with this tail that comes out. That's the peninsula, which is the part that I have actually been to. Except that it's ice. And you might be thinking, well, yes, yes, it's ice, but Jeff, there is a continent down there. And yes, there is a continent down there, but it's not the same shape as that ice. I have a link in my show notes that will show you a map of Antarctica with all the ice removed, which to my thinking is what should be on the map, right? If we're not going to show the Arctic at all, we should show just the land part of Antarctica. And if we show the land part of Antarctica, what we realize is that there's not that much land down there and the peninsula isn't a peninsula. It's an island. This topic actually came up while I was on the ship in Antarctica, and I heard the best rebuttal ever. You see, on the ship, there were a lot of people that wanted to visit their seventh continent. That was the only reason they were there, and apparently it was a fairly common phenomenon that people would get down there, literally take one step onto the mainland, such that it was, and then got back on the Zodiac and went back to the ship, and they were done. They never got off the ship again for the whole trip. For some people, it was literally just checking off the box. But for the crew, the people who have lived down there, the people who go there all the time, to them, they had a very different idea of what Antarctica was. For them, as soon as you got on that boat and started heading south, you were in Antarctica. It was all arbitrary. For them, it was the sky, the water, the wildlife, the ice, the whole package is Antarctica. And I'm starting to lean towards that because one of them said something very profound to me and said simply, if you visited Nantucket, have you been to Massachusetts? And I think most people would say, well, yeah, Nantucket is part of Massachusetts. It's an island off the coast. Hmm. Now, geologically speaking, it is absolutely part of North America, so it's part of the continent, but so are any of the other islands around Antarctica. And yet some people will say, well, if you just go to Elephant Island, you haven't really been to Antarctica. What if you just sail around down there? I'm actually booked on another cruise to Antarctica in a couple of years, and it's on a, a big celebrity cruise ship, you know, not the kind of expedition I did the first time. And uh, we're not going to get off the boat, quote unquote, in Antarctica. The closest we're going to get on land is Ushuaia. So for someone like me that likes these things to be very black and white, either I've done this or I haven't, I have a conundrum. Have I been to Antarctica? Well, yes. By nearly every definition, I have been to Antarctica. Have I set foot on the Antarctic continent? Well, maybe. I mean, there are certainly a lot of people who would say that I had, but if I look at that map, that shows that the part I stood on was actually just an island connected by ice. And it's been connected by ice for probably millions of years. So it's not like that ice goes away. So you get to decide whether I've been to Antarctica or not. But more importantly, for me, I get to decide. 
So if I say I've been to Antarctica, you can imagine me walking around with penguins in the ice and mountains and stuff. And yes, that's absolutely true. But if you see me standing at the South Pole with the the reflective sphere down there, no, I haven't been anywhere near there. Not only that, I haven't been to the Antarctic Circle, which is a little bit south of where I actually was. So, folks, at the end of the day, you may not ever be able to complete anyone's definition of your bucket list, but you can always, always complete your own. So in my mind, have I been to Antarctica? Yes, I certainly have. In the minds of the crew of the ship, have I been to Antarctica? Yes, and well before I considered that I was. As soon as I woke up that morning and an iceberg was floating by, they said I was in Antarctica, and well, who knows better? (laughs) And as it happens, in a couple of weeks I'm going to Africa. And I'm going to South Africa in two different places. I'm going to Limpopo and Cape Town. And someone said to me, oh, that's not real Africa. And I'm like, you know what? You don't get to decide (laughs) my definitions for these things. I get what he's saying. I was going to tourist Africa, and I, I am going to tourist Africa, and I don't deny that. But it's Africa. It has all the animals people associate with Africa. It has the climate and the birds. And the people, though not in the context that most people live, in the amazingly large and diverse place that is Africa. So yeah, on my bucket list is to complete the Century Club requirements. That doesn't mean I'm going to actually belong to the Century Club. I just think for fun, I'm going to try to complete their list of 100 countries, including countries I've just changed planes in, like Ireland and Fiji. Have I been there? Eh, I've been in their airport, and Fiji's airport, strangely, doesn't have any windows, so I didn't even get to look out the window at Fiji. But I have been there, and you guys get to decide the same thing. So go ahead, do it. Make your bucket list, and then try to check those things off any way you see fit. Tech Talk. My wife was listening to the podcast and said that the way I say tech talk sounds like TikTok, and we are not talking about TikTok, so I'm trying to enunciate a little better. Tech talk. Okay, there we go. So I just saw a video, and a lot of you guys may know about this thing, but somebody had an Airstream trailer, which may come up later, and they had a Husky, and sometimes they needed to leave the Husky in the trailer while they went off and did things. Yes, leaving animals in vehicles is always going to be a controversial topic, but assuming that you have a safe way to leave your pet in your vehicle, wouldn't it be nice to be able to monitor them with at least temperature? It would be really nice to have a remote way to tell what the temperature is in there in case something goes wrong. The air conditioner breaks, the heat breaks, or just something happens. And in the past, the only way I knew to do this was with some sort of Wi-Fi that lived in the vehicle. It's like a Wi-Fi hotspot or whatever. And then you have some sort of a camera. An Alfred cam would totally work for this that was pointing at a thermometer. And you could just log in and see. But it wouldn't really alert you if something went wrong. You'd have to just continuously check. Well, there is a product that does just that. It's called, and I am not associated with this product, it is called Waggle. That's W-A-G-G-L-E. I will have a link in the show notes. 
Waggle is this device that keeps track of the temperature and humidity, and some of the fancier versions have cameras, and they will simply alert you when anything changes. And the way they work is you don't need a Wi-Fi connection because they have a built-in cell phone. I have a game camera down at my property that's like this, that if, a, say, a deer walks in front of the camera, it uploads a picture over a cell phone network, and then I get it on my phone. This works the same way. So you are going to have to have a plan to use this thing. But for the peace of mind, it very well may be worth it. You will leave your dog in your vehicle and go do whatever you're going to do. And then if the heater fails or the air conditioning fails or for some reason the temperature changes outside of a range that you set, it will alert you. It will tell you, hey, you have a problem. You better get back there right away. And potentially that could be worth a lot. However, what are the drawbacks? Because of course there's drawbacks. Well, you have to be parked in a place that has your cell phone network. Uh, the ones I've seen are mostly Verizon, so you would need to be parked in a place that has Verizon coverage. Okay. And your phone, where you are, also needs to have coverage. So let's say that you parked at a trailhead and then went hiking. If you lose cell phone coverage while you're hiking, well, this thing isn't going to help you at all. So you have those caveats. It's also a little bit expensive. They start at about 179 bucks and go up from there. And the cheaper ones don't have cameras at all. So mm, I'm not sure that these are a perfect solution, but I think... There are enough people out there traveling with pets that this is going to fit into somebody's need criteria. I will link to it. Uh, this is not a review. Obviously, I've never used one of these things. I, I'm not recommending it in any way. I'm just letting you know that it's there and technology like this exists. So it's called a waggle. It monitors temperature remotely and will alert you if things change. And hmm, I can actually think of a lot of applications for that. Tales from the road. Way back in the day, I sold my motorhome when I lived in Utah. I sold my 1983 17-foot Toyota Mini Cruiser, the kind of thing that a lot of people wish were made today. It was basically a van. I mean, it was a pickup truck, but I mean, it was smaller than my Sprinter, but it, it was fully self-contained. It slept four, it had a fridge and a shower and everything. I mean, it was it was a really nice unit. But my life had changed. I didn't have a whole lot of money, and I really wasn't doing any camping. So we sold it, and I lived close enough to work that I got a Vespa. Now, a Vespa is a motor scooter. It's a very classic motor scooter. It's called a Vespa because that's the Italian word for wasp, and these things kind of sound like bees. They go, when you're driving them around. Anyway, they are two-stroke, at least the one I had. I had a 1979 P125, if you're an aficionado, and you have two tanks in the things. One requires oil, and one requires gasoline, and it's under the seat, and this matters. And I would use this to go back and forth to work. Well, one day at work, I got sent on an assignment. I had to go work at a field that was much farther away from the office, and then from there, I was to come back home. Normally, I would have been assigned a truck, but for some reason, no truck on this one, and that's fine. So I drive out there, and if I remember correctly, I was moving trees with an excavator. That's one of the things I did. And I started to head back, and it was about a 45-minute ride, and uh, the thing started sputtering. Now, these things don't have fuel gauges. What you have is a switch that will switch between the reserve tank and the main tank. I think this is fairly common on motorcycles. 
and it's really not a it's not two tanks it's just moving the pickup down more basically the top pickup will run out letting you know that you're almost out of gas you flip it to the bottom pickup and when that one runs out you're really out of gas so okay I flipped it to the bottom pickup, the sputtering stopped, and I'm going home, and everything is going good, except that I was about 10 miles from home still, and it started sputtering again. I didn't account for the fact that I was going to be going up some really steep hills, and it was using a lot of fuel, and I was in a part of Salt Lake City that didn't have any gas stations. This was in the foothills in the far eastern part of the valley. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Point of the matter is, is I was out of gas, and I was in a place where I was on a two-lane road, and there were no gas stations, and I was actually going to be a problem for traffic because I was barely able to go at the speed necessary. So what to do? I pulled over, and I popped open the seat and opened the tank and looked inside, and uh, yeah, there was very little gas in there. Now, the way the Vespa is designed, you can actually look into the tank, and you can see the fuel pickup, and I noticed that the gas was just below the fuel pickup level. I mean, if I shook the Vespa some of the gas would kind of go in there and that's why it was sputtering. It was sometimes getting a little bit of gas and I didn't really know what to do. I didn't, this was before cell phones. There was nobody I could call. I could try to hitch a ride. And then I had a really either stupid or brilliant idea, depending on how you look at it. On the side of the road were a bunch of smooth pebbles and they were very clean and I thought to myself, well, these pebbles are clean and too big to go down the fuel pickup. So what if I just filled my tank with them until they got to the point of the fuel pickup? So I did. And uh, yeah, it worked. It actually let that fuel go up just enough to give me enough oomph to go another couple miles to a gas station. <laughs> Where I had to take the rocks out, which was no fun. What do you do with a gasoline-covered rock? I mean, this is not a normal problem to have, but uh, I ended up just kind of piling them next to the gas pumps. Anyway, I told you this was like either really smart or really stupid. It did get me what I needed. It was the goal. And I'm absolutely not recommending that anybody put rocks in their gas tank to try to help themselves get a few miles when they're out of gas. But in this one case, it worked. Product review. Okay. This is a little strange, but my wife picked up this little tiny miniature arcade game and well it's been a lot of fun and it, it is tiny and it fits in a van and i thought i would talk about it um if you're of my age um galaga galaga was a very big game and many of us poured lots of quarters into these machines it was at a point where video games were kind of going to the next level a little bit they were adding color and better music and multiple levels and this was like a, the vanguard game of that kind of switch over now truth be told i played galaxian more than galaga they were very similar games but uh, my wife brought me this little tiny Galaga machine that looks just like a coin-op machine, except it fits in your hand. It has a joystick and buttons. It even has like a little place to put quarters, except you don't actually put the quarters in. You just press the button and that's how it starts. And when you do that, you can play Galaga. And it's the exact software that is in the coin-op game. Now, listen to that. Does that bring back memories? If it does, 
you might really, really enjoy having this. It's just a really well-done implementation of a miniature arcade game. And uh, it has headphone jack and volume controls. You can power it either with batteries or plug it into USB. It's just really well done. And it's the entire game is in here. I mean, this isn't a clone. This is the game. Oh, 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 ah. And I've never actually been very good at it, but that doesn't mean it's not fun. And it turns out that they have a bunch of these games. They're made by a company called My Arcade. Okay, that's enough of that. And, you know, if you are a Pac-Man or Ms. Pac-Man freak, or, or you did really well at Contra, or Rolling Thunder, or they actually do have Galaxian, or Heavy Barrel, or Caveman Ninja. I mean, these are all the games they have. They're not inexpensive. These things are 35 to 40 bucks, depending. But dang, they did such a good job with these that I think this would be a really cute, fun addition to a lot of people's vans. So I'll have a link in the show note to these, and you can pick any one you want. I do want to give you one word of caution, though. They do make another one that comes with 300 retro-style games. It's made by the same company. It looks the same, and it's a little bit cheaper. It's 32 bucks, and you're like, well, why wouldn't I just get that? Well, it's because it has retro-style games. It doesn't have any of the games that you've actually heard of. These are just 300 random, little, very simple games, and honestly, it's nowhere near as much fun as the one dedicated game. So I would stay away from those. But man, if I had had one of these machines as a kid, I don't think I ever would have left my bedroom. I mean, it's like every 80s kid's dream come true in one little box. A place to visit. I just found out yesterday that I'm going to Portland. And most of you are probably thinking Portland, Oregon. And to me, having grown up in New England, when people say Portland, I automatically think of Maine. And indeed, that's where I'm going. I didn't know I was going there. I only found out because I'm going on a cruise and they have altered our ports. And now we're going to Portland. Some people are disappointed about this because we are no longer going to Bar Harbor, one of the most difficult places in the world for me to pronounce. But I actually like Portland. I'm excited about it. And one of the reasons is that there's something very unusual there. I've never seen anywhere else, and you can visit it. And it is called the Observatory. But that's not a great name for what it is. And, uh, well, let me explain. So in Portland, there is this tower, and it's been there since the early 1800s. It was ordered in 1807. It's been there quite a while. And it's just a big colonial tower, People might think it was a lighthouse. It kind of looks like a lighthouse, but it doesn't have a light. To be clear, there is a very famous large lighthouse in Portland. That is something completely different. This is much closer to downtown. So imagine this big octagonal brick structure that looks like a lighthouse with a white railing and little room at the top, but it's not a lighthouse. So what could it be? Well, a hint is it's in the name. It's the observatory. And yes, it was for observing from the top of the tower. But it's not a fire tower or anything like that. It was for watching for ships. You see, sailing vessels coming into port had no way to communicate with the port. They didn't have radio. They couldn't pick up the cell phone. And while they could communicate with flags, like semaphore flags or nautical flags, there's a number of ways to communicate with flags, 
They could only do that once they got close enough to the port that somebody could see them. And there's the problem of the horizon. You basically can't see farther than 20 miles when you're at sea level. So, solution, go above sea level, and that's where the tower comes in. They made this tower so that someone could go up there and look out at the horizon and see ships well before anybody in the town could. Okay, this sounds great. So you may be thinking, oh, this is great. The shipping company put this up or the government put it up or something like that. The Coast Guard, even though it's before the Coast Guard existed. No, no, who put it up was a guy who wanted to make money, <laughs> which is often the case. He realized that if he built this tower, he could charge $5 a year, a lot of money in 1807, to ship owners to duplicate the signals of their ships. <laughs> so it would work like this. Let's say Joe's shipping company would pay the owner of the tower $5, and when Joe's ships came over the horizon, they would signal the port that they're almost there. And then the tower would put out its flags so that everybody in the town could see that that ship was about to come in. But if you didn't pay the five bucks, the tower would ignore your ship. <laughs> That's all. It's kind of a cool thing. He was able to see 30 miles out, which of course is 10 miles better than 20 miles, and that could be the way sailing ships go, two or three hours more notice, which was worth a lot of money to them. So the tower still exists. It was rebuilt in 1939, and you can visit it, and it's great, and I'm going to go visit it in October when I'm finally there. So it is the Portland Observatory, very simple name. You will definitely see it if you go to Portland, but during the summer months, you can actually visit it and climb up the many, many stairs to the top at 86 feet. Resource recommendation. So I've been spending a bit of time in winterized vehicles lately. My van is winterized, my Winnebago is winterized, my Scamp is winterized. But if you spend time in winterized vehicles, well, you need to use some of the stuff that's winterized, like toilets and sinks. And I did something that turned out to be pretty smart. I bought a case of windshield washer fluid. Now, windshield washer fluid is simply methanol, which is alcohol you can't drink, don't drink this ever, mixed with water, and usually a blue dye, although sometimes it's orange or green or whatever. But the traditional color is blue. And I buy the cheapest stuff I can get because I don't want the additives that are found in like the Rain-X brand. I love the Rain-X brand for putting in my vans to spray in the window, but for my use here, I just want the cheap stuff. I check the temperature rating on it. I definitely want it to go down to at least negative 20 Fahrenheit because that's the coldest conditions I'm likely to encounter. And I use this stuff. Well, it turns out I use it for a lot of stuff and I, I didn't realize it. One thing I've always used it for is toilets. If you have a cassette toilet, you can fill the water container with windshield washer fluid instead of water, and then you can use it all winter long, just like you always did. And that works great. And the alcohol actually helps keep odor down a bit too, so bonus. I've always done that. I've talked about that a bunch of times. But this week, I found that I was also using it for some things like re-winterizing the sink. So I wouldn't dewinterize the water system. I brought in some water with me. But if I needed to wash a dish, I could wash that with the water and then, when I was done, give it a chaser of windshield washer fluid. And that would flush out the water from the pipes into the holding tank where it wasn't going to bother me any and fill the trap 
with windshield washer fluid, which wasn't going to freeze. So that was a good use too. And then the last use, and this one is nothing to overlook, you can unfreeze locks with windshield washer fluid. Now this isn't pleasant, it's very, very cold, but I have a number of padlocks I need to deal with down there. And I was able to pour washer fluid onto the padlocks to get them to loosen up, to melt some of the ice, and to get them to open. And that was a very useful thing as well. I did lubricate them afterwards, and hopefully this won't happen again, but uh, yeah, in a pinch, you can use washer fluid to help defrost locks. So, as a resource recommendation, I think during winter months, if you're going to be up north, it's a good idea to have one or two gallons of windshield washer fluid with you and think about different ways it can come in handy because it will stay liquid, it won't freeze and break things, and it's also good for cleaning windows. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 157. If you ever need to get a hold of me, provided I'm not in Africa, you can send me an email at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the wise words of Will Rogers. The road to success is dotted with many tempting parking spaces.